0: No other name. Hallelujah. At that name, anxiety, fear, doubt, all have to flee. At that name, demons tremble. At that name, sickness and disease has to submit and subject itself. Hallelujah. Thank you for the name of Jesus. Oh, praise God. Praise God. Welcome. To Wednesday night Bible study, God bless you. You may be seated in the name of the Lord. I want to add my thank you to everyone who participated in our outreach. Some of you uh, you helped make eggs, or or, or the uh, crosses wrote on those. You got them in here. Thank you for that. Praying those of you that were here Monday night, of course, putting the bags together. The teams that all did that. Thank you so much. Amen. I am so excited for what happened. In about an hour or so, we got 100 bags out, and I think there's only a few left over which have been given out since, including tonight. And so, I believe next time, which our next one's going to be in June, we can do double that and do 200. Hallelujah. And so, we'll be doing this again, and I'm excited. So, thank you, and we'll be talking to you about that as we get a little bit closer. So, in Jesus' name. Also, want to just real quickly... Give a little bit of, of an announcement to what's starting tonight and what's going to carry through through this month. On Wednesdays, particularly, my wife is going to open up a series tonight in just a few minutes, and then I'm going to teach a couple Wednesdays. And then the last Wednesday of the month, Ben and Vicki Vernon will be with us, and we're going to have a revival Wednesday. Um, we typically say revival Sunday. Well, this is going to be a revival Wednesday, and worship and ministry, impartation, gifts of the Spirit. I believe God's going to heal. Uh, mental, physical, emotional healings. I believe God's going to do all kinds of great things on the night. So that'll be the last Wednesday of the month, of this month, April. Then also that last Sunday of the month, April 30th, the Vernons will be with us and we'll have a special revival Sunday. On that Saturday, the 29th, we're going to have a special prayer meeting and I'll be talking more about that, but more to come on all of that uh, as we get uh, closer to it. But just want to put that in your system to be thinking about, praying about, in Jesus' name. Amen. at this time, we'll go ahead and dismiss our children uh, for Kingdom Kids and, of course, our teens for Student Ministries. God bless you. No, teens are staying. Sorry, teens, you're staying. I apologize. I forgot. Yeah, I'm getting, I'm getting waving back there. Thank you, gentlemen. I feel like I'm at an airport. You know, which way do I go? You know? <laughs> They're waving me in. Okay, that's right. Teens are staying because, of course, Sister Courtney Miller is coming with a timely Tim. woo God bless Sister Courtney!
1: Good evening, Church of Omaha. <laughs> so, if you would join with me tonight, um, I'll be reading from 1 John, chapter 2. Um, And I'm going to be reading out of the NKJV tonight. Um, I'll be reading verses three through six. And it reads, now by this, we know that we know him. If we keep his commandments, he who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him, but whatsoever or but whosoever keeps his word truly loves, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him, but he who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. For the next few moments tonight, um, I have believed that God has given me a word um, titled to be like him. So if you'll pray with me, Lord have your way in this house in this place today. I thank you for your spirit that has already entered the room. Let every word that I speak be from you and for the edification and for the equipping of the saints. I pray that your word may fall upon all of our hearts as the seed fell upon good ground. Let it take root and increase. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to first give honor and thanks to Bishop Powell for this opportunity to take a few moments to speak to you tonight. I also would like to give honor to my husband, Jeremy, who I love. I stand before you submitted to my husband, my bishop, and most importantly, Jesus. The opening scripture that we just read in 1 John is assumed to have been written by John, the apostle whom Jesus loved. He is speaking to the church who has recently seen an influx of false doctrine entering and influencing the church. He pens the words, he who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Over the last week or so, the hymn, To Be Like Jesus, has rang in my brain. If you know anything about me, You know that I really don't mind the old hymns, but it's not typically what you hear me sing. So as the Lord spoke to me from those simple words, I began to think how to truly be like him. Jesus, most importantly, first off, loved others. Dr. David K. Bernard said, love is the only acceptable motive in ministry. We can see this when Jesus modeled this principle all throughout the Gospels. Peter, one of the first apostles called by Jesus, is a great example. Jesus truly showed him much love. And in Mark 5, Jesus finds two empty ships. These ships belong to Simon, who is Peter, James, and John. The chapter continues as Jesus gets into Peter's boat and starts teaching the people. After he's done teaching, he asks Peter to launch his nets out into the deep. Peter, like most of us, said, Master, we have toiled all night and haven't caught a thing. But since you said it, I will let down a net. Although Peter only partially listened to Jesus and only let down one net, when he was asked to let down multiple nets, Jesus still did a work. The next net was so full that they went to bring it in and it broke. Peter was so humbled that he fell to Jesus' feet. Jesus shows him his calling in verse 10. He says, fear not, from henceforth thou shalt catch men. After these words, they brought their ships to land and forsook all and followed him. The story shows the true love of Jesus. He had love for Peter just as he has love for us. There have been many times in my life when I hear the voice of the Lord and followed him about halfway or not at all. And Jesus has shown me this same love that he showed to Peter. We as the body of Christ, are called to have the same love that Jesus has. We must follow Jesus' example of love in every situation. First John 4:19 says, "We love him because He first loved us." If a man say, "I love God and hateth his brother," he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment have we from him that he who loves God love his brother also. This is our commandment from God. He loves us so we can be like him and truly love others. The ministry of Jesus was also based on servanthood, he was a true servant to all. Throughout Scripture, we see him healing the sick. Uh, and the diseases he raised the dead and heals the blind eyes one of the most practical ways that jesus served was by humbling self to clean the apostles feet in israel walking the dirt roads the disciples feet became dirty washing the feet of a guest was a very common practice provided by the host but was never performed by the host of the home it was typically performed by a servant john 13 tells us that jesus washed the apostles feet Peter tried to reject this act, but Jesus rebuked him and told him that if he would not allow it, that he has no part with him. Jesus, later in John 13, says, For I have given you an example. You should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither is he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. Jesus showed these words with his actions. Although he was God in flesh, he still humbled himself to be a servant to those who loved him and those who would betray him. How much more should we as Christians, who were bought with his blood, use our lives to serve Christ and others with all that we have? If we are truly modeling Christ, we will do our best to seek that he creates in us a clean heart and uses it to serve him and others." As submitted and sold out as we are to Christ, we are still human and we falter. Peter was no different. (laughs) Jesus tells Peter in Luke 22 that before the rooster crows, Peter will deny Jesus three times. And this is exactly what happened. After the rooster crowed, he remembered what Jesus had said and Peter wept. After his resurrection, Jesus found Peter and some of the apostles back on the boat fishing. After casting their net and Jesus filling it again once more, Peter swam to shore to meet Jesus. Jesus asked him three times, Do you love me? Through this exchange, Jesus forgives and restores Peter. We even see in Acts that God used Peter as the mouth to speak on the day of Pentecost in spite of all his shortcomings. God is in the restoration business. He desires for all of us to be forgiven, restored, and walking with him. Jesus is once again showing us how we should be more like him. In Ephesians 4, 32, it says, And be ye kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. What we say and how we act matter. If it didn't, then Jesus wouldn't have come to this earth to be our example. The most selfless act in history was when God robed himself in flesh, suffered, died, and rose so we could be saved. I can't think of any greater love, servitude, or forgiveness than that. This world is looking for something to fill that empty space in their hearts that only Jesus can fill. This world tries to give people a sense of belonging, a sense of fullness, but these things are only for a moment. People are truly seeking something real. They have been hurt, and they are looking for a true place of hope and healing. I know, and I trust that you all know, that the Church of Omaha is a true pace of hope and healing, and God only wants this to continue and expand the Omaha metro. But he needs and wants us to submit to him so we can truly be the body of Christ and show these attributes and actions. We are called to love, we are called to serve, and we are called to forgive, just as Christ has done. This will allow us to help people find Jesus, just as someone special in our lives did. Think, about the, think back to the place when Jesus' love hit you like a ton of bricks. When he renewed your heart, when you were baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of your sins, and filled with the baptism of the Holy Ghost, speaking in other tongues. Those were life-changing moments in my life, and I want them for others too. So as Easter is coming on Sunday, I pray that we remember his sacrifice for all of us and for this world. His desire is for all people to know him and to be saved. We are his hands and his feet on this earth, and it is our calling to be like him here. Let's seek his face, search our hearts, and strive to become more like him.
0: Thank you, Sister Courtney. Wow. That was a definite, timely ten uh, word from the Lord. So thank you. Amen. And students, you may be dismissed at this time. Praise God. I apologize for the mix-up earlier. My wife is coming and is going to share for the next 40 minutes um, about something that has been a passion of hers. I'll let her kind of tell that, if that's a part of what she's going to say, but some of what she's going to express tonight is from the scientific element, and of course, in her role as a a therapist. But you'll begin to see, and she'll bring out ways in which this works into the body of Christ. And for the next two Wednesdays after next week and the following week, I'm going to also share some things uh, related to that as well. So in Jesus' name, let's go forward in the word of the Lord.
2: Whew. So every time I do this, it doesn't get any easier. And, but thank you, Bishop, for asking me to do this. That's, I want everyone to know that, was, that it was something that he asked. I would never ask to come up and do this. Um, I guess I will kind of start w- where this kind of came from. I guess in the last, I don't know, I've, I think I've been licensed since like 2018. I'm an LPC. And for the first probably five years of my um, work, many of you know I focused very heavily on the thinking and the thoughts, and I think those things are incredibly important, because as the Bible says, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Um, If you don't, the, the way we think does have a lot to do with what we do. Our thoughts do lead to our actions. I've kind of, in the last probably six months, dug quite a bit deeper, and I've realized it's Thoughts are good, but I'm even going to jump a little bit before some of those things to kind of have a better understanding of maybe why some of us (laughs) do the things that we do and that it's not all just based in, um, you know, just think a better thought and then you'll just feel better. And sometimes that is true. Um, But do you ever find yourself reacting in a way that you regret? You know, that outburst that you have that if you had just given it like three seconds more, perhaps you wouldn't have said what you said or reacted in the way that you did. Do you look around at your life, look at your work, maybe look at your co-workers and wonder why is it that I just struggle to, to connect, to fit in, to maybe, you know, go out to eat with people because you're just maybe scared of people or sometimes those connections can be kind of scary. Understanding your relationship with your own self and your nervous system and how that was influenced, impacted, and in some way programmed by your early childhood experiences. Um, And in some way, you know, many of these things are not to say that our caregivers did it wrong or did it right. I wish I can tell you I have said a million times, I wish I knew 27 years ago what I know now. Um... Because I feel like if we can really understand this wonderful body that God gave us and why we do the things that we do, I think that could help us to free us to be all that God has called us to be. Because I think many of us live feeling broken, feeling defective. We have all of these core fears that we have in our lives. And we think that there's something wrong with us, that somehow, you know, we wasn't in line when God was given out, you know, confidence or, you know, all of those things. And it's somehow there's something wrong with us. And what I'm here to tell you is there's nothing wrong with you. You are exactly as God has called you to be. You're exactly who God has called you to be. And that no matter what you've been through, no matter what church hurt, no matter what parental hurt, caregiving hurt that you have been through. As I spoke many months ago about neuroplasticity, God gave us the ability to rewire things were wired into our brain. The hope it's here tonight is that what was wired in can be wired out. But what I'm also going to tell you is neuroplasticity doesn't happen just because. It doesn't happen in a passive way. I don't know if you remember me saying, when I, would go into the, when I did my internship at Madonna and, those, and, and I was on the stroke unit and those clients or patients had had strokes, my job was to go in and say to those people, you can lay in that bed and do nothing, but you're going to get wheeled out of here just like you were wheeled in here. But if you can get out of that bed, you can get into the wheelchair, let them push you down the hallway, and you can do the three hours a day of OT, PT, and speech, um, you have a very good chance of rewiring the damage that that stroke has done to your brain. Some of them did, some of them didn't. The ones that did the hard work, do they not leave there in a far better place? Well, what I have discovered is with trauma, with early um, Attachment wounds, it's no different. Can God heal us? Yes. Does He desire to heal us? Yes. But we have to get in the wheelchair, we have to be wheeled down the hallway, and we have to do the hard work that it takes to, to do that. When you understand and believe that you yourself can create safe and meaningful, transformative, transformative relationships with your family, with your friends, with those of us here at the Church of Omaha. Um, You can create relationships that are filled with belonging, with significance, with connection. Your entire life is going to feel better and it's going to look better. When people walk into our doors, they're not looking, I don't care who you pull at the door. And you ask them, what are you looking for in a church? I can promise you there might be one, but very few of them are going to say that it's perfect music or that the preaching is just perfect and eloquent. What they're looking for are connections. They're looking for people that care about them. They're looking for people that will sit beside them in church. They're looking for people that will text them and call them and say, I care about you and mean those words. If, if we here tonight, listen, this is not just, these are not my words per se, but God has put me on such a track where I, have, I am convinced that short of salvation in the Holy Ghost, churches are going to grow, people are going to thrive if we follow up with what God has called us to do. So, in that, with that being said, can you put up the, very, the first, I call him the blue man. I'm going to start with our autonomic system. And I might refer to this in here as ANS, um, which again stands for automatic, um, autonomic nervous system. The autonomic nervous system is an extraordinarily built system within each one of us, given to us by God. And it's for one purpose, to keep us safe. And if you look at the brain stem there at the bottom of the brain... This picture is very important because this right here, when you wonder why you act the way you do, the way you respond the way you do, this is the system. The brain sends signals down into that little thing there in the brainstem, and that's called the autonomic nervous system. And then if you see the tail that comes down the brain, that is what is called the vagal nerve. The... So just understanding that, the top, so the very top part of it is called the vagal nerve. As you come down, it's the this, this sympathetic system. If you've ever heard of fight-flight, that's what system that's in. And then as it goes in the very bottom part of the tail is what's called the dorsal, and that would be what we would consider freeze. Have everybody ever heard that? Fight-flight-freeze. F- okay. So it's an extraordinary system. Some of us may, again, like I said earlier, feel broken and feel confused. But the system that I'm going to speak on tonight, this evening, it's never confused. And the key is learning to understand. Don't sit there tonight and think, oh, those are such big words or, oh, that's just a hard thing to understand. It's not very hard at all. And if we can just open our mind to see this as simple as this is, this is going to understand why When you're driving down I-80 and somebody cuts in front of you, you don't sit there and have a thought, should I slam on my brakes? No, uh, your brain automatically does it. When your children do something and you just like, without giving it any thought, you can blame that little egg there at at the base of the brain. All that information comes flying down that tail and the body reacts. Some of us have, have had thoughts like um, when, we, when we have these reactions or why does my husband outburst the way that he does or why does my wife, you know, shut down and, and not, you know, kind of goes into that immobilized place. We often think I'm going crazy or I can't trust myself. I can't experience closeness. But we can hold fast to the truth that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but he's given us the power of love and of a sound mind. And when we're able to have... Um, When we understand this, I believe we're able to have so much more compassion, both for ourselves and for people around us. When people come into into this building and they react a certain way, or maybe they act and do things that we think, my word. If we can learn as a church to look at them and say, okay, this system has been activated, and I will get into it deeper— but instead of looking at them like, oh, there's some awful human, or I can't believe they would say that. If we can understand why people do what they do and why we do what we do, I feel like we will have so much more compassion. Our autonomic nervous system, again, it's always correct. But we have to understand something about the brain. It doesn't run on timelines. I was born in 1970-something. And it doesn't, the brain doesn't have this timeline in the brain. It's all stored in that brain stem as present. So when you've had things from your past that have happened to you that are not processed, that have never been healed, the brain doesn't know that that happened 30 years ago. It's still present, unprocessed, sitting somewhere, often either it, the, the, the information is stored in that area, but, but the emotions of those things are stored within the body system itself. When we experience attachment wounds, when we experience trauma, and trauma, not, trauma is not a thing. Trauma is, is the result of something that happened to us. Um, it's something that overwhelmed our system's capacity to process through the energy of that experience. That's all trauma is. And what might traumatize me, if you will, might not traumatize my husband. What traumatizes him might not traumatize me. But when that happens, and, it's at, and after it occurs... If a, if a person doesn't have a place of safety or someone with whom that is safe and compassionate with them and towards them to process it, sometimes those things can, be stuck, can become stuck in our body and stored there and literally locked in time. So again, if something happened to you when you was a child 30 years ago and you've never talked about it, you've never processed it, you've just stuck it in the back compartment in your brain, I promise you, The body does keep score. And at some point, if that is not healed, if it's not processed, it's going to come out. Inside, so we like, so I call this the data bank. So that's where all the information of our past experiences are stored. The good things, the bad things, the ugly things, the unprocessed things, relational issues, and most importantly, attachment wounding that have yet to be resolved. So you might ask, where does all this data come from? Where does the brain get this? Um, And I can tell you that it comes from our early childhood experiences. So tonight, I'm starting with, I I, I believe we've got to explore a little bit of the attachment to understand where this information comes from, comes from the life that we lived very young. So in infancy, attachment development forms how we relate to our caregivers, expressing our needs, how our needs are met. So think about your primary caregiver. You know, um, when you wanted something or when you fell and got a boo-boo on your knee, did your mother say, oh, wipe it off, get up, you're fine, move along? Did she hover over you and say, oh, my goodness, are you okay, and kind of freak out? Or did she just kind of wait for you to kind of tell her what you need? Those three different parenting styles, will, if it's done consistently, will has, have the, the, the possibility of developing three different types of attachment or attachment wounding, either, either um, secure attachments or insecure. Since infants are helpless and without language, our attachment styles develop and evolve as a matter of survival to obtain our basic needs. We communicate our needs by crying, so starting from the very young age. Um, we learn to behave in ways that helps us to get what we need for our very survival. So if you have a newborn baby, um, I and my husband did foster care for 13 years, and one of our first placements was a, was a two-month-old baby boy. Um, his mom was really young. I believe his mother loved him, but unfortunately she was young and left him in his crib for hours on end. And so when he came into our home, um, he was given the, it's called failure to thrive. And 26 years later, 27 years later, that child still suffers from many of those attachment wounds that happened to him very young. I remember thinking why he won't ever, he doesn't remember it. But what I'm here to tell you is this part of the brain doesn't forget anything. And everything that we go through gets, if it's habitual. If these, the, you know, if you, if you do something wrong to your kids, you're not scarring them. But if it's day after day after day, if it's, if it's it, chronic, I guess, would be the word. Um, if we cried out to our mothers, if we looked for them for attention, if we looked to them, we were all born looking for who's looking for us. And if we're born and nobody is really looking for us, our mothers aren't very attached. They're not very um, attuned to us. I had a really close friend who when she was born, um, she, her mom was just coming into the church, and she, you know, says, you know, there was some things that had happened in her own life. She'd had a pretty traumatic life her, of her own. Well, when she and her husband came into the church, they found a place of hope, a place of healing, and they just, like, when they got there, she felt safe. She felt all of these things, and she, very shortly thereafter, um, her husband's parents started accusing her of because of all the changes and we know what that can look like sometimes accused her of having an affair with her pastor and um, all of these things and it was a pretty traumatic time for her and very shortly after she um, had a complete nervous breakdown she was in the hospital for several weeks while she was pregnant while she was there the baby was born and um, she stated that for a long time, even after her child was born, she wasn't able to, I mean, how attuned to your child can you be when you're in the middle of a mental breakdown because of all these family issues that are going on? And I've kind of followed that story for a while. And now into adulthood, when you, if you look back at those early childhood woundings, that particular person now is a, has, has an avoidant type of a personality because that child learned that when they cried out, the mother wasn't attuned because she wasn't able, not because the mother didn't love her, not because of any of those things. It's, it's, it, if you don't know these things, you, you don't have any idea that, that you, this is even happening. Well, years later, you know, she went into therapy and she discovered that her avoidant personality style, when you go back to the beginning, what do avoiders do? They have to self-soothe. They, they find when I cry for help and I don't get my needs met, pretty soon you just stop asking for help. And then, so as an adult, what do you do? You don't ask for help. You, you're very independent. You do things yourself. You do things your own way. Because early on, wired in that autonomic system of our brain, we learn these things. And so again, it's not to say that our parents did it wrong or right or they're bad or good people. It has nothing to do with that. It just, what the, the purpose of this is to say, if we can all understand why we do what we do, then we can start to, to take the steps necessary to start healing ourselves. And if we get healed, what else can we do within the body of Christ? Because people are coming into this church every single service with these wounds. Every service, sitting in our midst, I can promise you, if I pass this microphone around, every one of you have a story to tell. Our childhood-learned attachment styles carries with us until adulthood. And it lives as we try to have, and then as we try to have more complex relationships with adults, if these attachment wounds are never healed and they're never soothed and taken care of, what do you think it looks like when you go into a marriage or you go into and you have children? You just start repeating what, you, what you're your what your autonomic system recorded. Attachment in adulthood relates to how we build relationships and manage the highs and the lows of those interactions, how we communicate, how we repair, how we relate to our family and one with another. In secure attachment, adults and infants are attuned to one another and the relationship provides the foundation for healthy relationships in the future. If you have an insecure attachment style, Um, caregivers are not attuned to their children, and the relationship does not provide a healthy foundation for relationships in the future. Our attachment defines the child's stability, social interactions, emotions, cognitive development, and as they grow into adulthood. And whether we like this or not, we are all the sum total of our childhood experiences and stories our brains wrote about the meaning of them. And so when, we, when I had talked before about the core fears and the core beliefs we have, this is where it came from. We all were children at one time. And our parents, whether knowingly or not knowingly, made mistakes. I can st- I could be here all night telling you the things that I wish that I had done different as a mother. I can tell you that my style of parenting completely was received two different ways with our two children. And the same exact thing but in two different two different people it was received differently one of the things that we are as humans are storytellers and again this is where our where our automatic thoughts and beliefs come from we all have a story a story that we have developed over the past however many years you've been alive with the foundation of that story written in our early years and as the brain develops from birth through infancy into toddlerhood adolescent and into adulthood our brains are writing a novel and where do you think the enemy goes after us this is the access he has he's not going to jump out of you out at you from a, in a closet he's going to he's going to he's got your pen and he's going to whisper things in your ear just like he did to eve did god not say that's not you are not who he says you are you're not created in his image all the things that are lies that as we're writing the novel and it's being recorded in that automatic system of our brain and it lives on forever we think things we sense things we tell things like no other animals as far as we know tell stories Stories have certain features to them, and one of the features is that your story, my story, it began by somebody else telling the story. Think about your parents when they were pregnant with you. Maybe they, they started to talk about you. First, you made your mother sick and how much she threw up and how tired she was and all of those things. You then would hear things like, oh, Johnny acts just like his father. Susie is her mother's child with her mother's attitude you know, things like that. You hear that about yourself. The conditions in which we were raised as children have an impact on how we tell our stories and how we function as adults. It has everything to do with how we see God based on how we see our father, our earthly father. It it has to do with how when sister so-and-so does something, if our autonomic system suspects danger, 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 which we'll get into that in a minute, your brain is not dealing with sister so-and-so. Your brain is dealing with something that's undealt with way back. We ourselves point out characteristics that we carry about our parents. You know, maybe we're hard workers, maybe certain mannerisms or expressions, the quality of the relationships that we develop, how we we solve problems, how we disagree, how we talk, how we handle stress. And when the stories that we write include danger, We have this threat detector system that I like to refer to as our very own special ops team, given to you by God. I like this analogy because special ops team in general are the best of the best, and I believe that God gave us the best of the best, and that means he gave us the ability to work within it. But this special ops team has many team members, and while each team member may have a different job, each one of them have one primary purpose and mission, and that is to keep us alive and to keep us safe. That's it. Every minute of every day, that autonomic system, that special ops system is working to to keep you safe. So let me introduce you to the first member of our special ops team. And this team number number one is called neuroception. This first part of our self protective system um, is what I would like to call the point person. This team member, who is the first line of defense, he lives in that brainstem and he's always looking for threats and danger. He's out there with binoculars scanning for danger every minute of the day, 24 7, whether you're sleeping, whether you're eating, whether you're no matter what it is. Sometimes when you say, oh, what what was that did you hear that or those it can pick up and if you if you could go back to that first slide I want you to see one thing about that do you see the blue vein looking things that go like to the eyes to the mouth the neuroceptor works from our five senses it's, con- it's neurocepting it, it's, it's th- because you can see where the, what the eyes, the mouth, the ears. And so all of those senses that God gave us, it's pulling data from our surroundings every second of every day. Every day. Our special ops forces are looking for cues of safety, danger, and life-threatening things. That's all it's doing. And so right now, whether you know it or not, your neuroceptors are looking to see what's in front of you, if, if what in front of you is safe. Is it life-threatening? It's looking around this room to detect, is, are people here safe? It decides this by looking in through the data bank that's at the base of the neck, because all of that information is stored there, and it's processing past information, and it's comparing our life experiences to decide if you're safe now based on all the information that it has put in there. This special ops team, otherwise known as our automatic nervous system, will do whatever is necessary to keep you alive, even if it's to your detriment. If Team Neuroception perceive that there is no threat, they call up Team Member Number Two, and if you could put up slide number two, uh, this is Team Member Ventral Vagal. So they're kind of so you can see it's kind of the same idea. Um, at the very top of this. So, And I also want you to notice the ladder. Liken the ladder unto that nerve that goes down the spinal cord and into the body. Team ventral is called in when our threat detector says there's no worries. I've got you. Coast is clear. We're safe. Our ventral vagal is our state of regulation where we experience presentness. Safety, social, connection, flow, creativity, peace, joy, all the things that we desire to have much more of. This is an I can, I'm able experience. If, however, while enjoying time in our ventral vagal, we are spending time with our spouse, and we start to share something very important with them, they're looking down at their phone, our special forces neuroceptor says danger, danger. Team Neuroceptors then scans the automatic nervous system base, a uh, database, bingo, oh, there it is. My parents that were neglectful were never there. I had to work on my own school projects alone. When I came home to tell them about something, they weren't available. So now here we are in the present dealing with a husband or a wife that's looking at the phone. And in our case, it would be me looking at the phone. I just got the look. Um <laughs> But do you see how the connection, when I'm trying to explain something or he's trying to explain something to me, if we're looking at our phones, that neuroceptor looks through that database and it, and it takes you back to the time when you went in to talk to your parents and they weren't available to you. Bingo. There's danger. It's primary job is to keep you safe. And so team neuroceptors then scan the automatics again and it says, um, There's danger. And so all of a sudden, in a millisecond, my autonomic nervous system says this is dangerous. And then it calls on team member, the next team, the special ops team. And if you can put up well, so if you kind of work through these, the ventral vagal is at the top. Remember, that's team. That's when we're safely connected. So I feel connected to the greater world. The next one down is so now we're calling up the next one. Because remember, your spouse was looking at their phone when you're trying to talk to them. So and your neurotransmitters and your autonomic nervous system says that's dangerous because they're not listening to you. All kinds of thoughts go through your mind. This is where those automatic thoughts come. I'm not important. I'm not enough. If I was enough, I would, they would be looking at me instead of the phone. And all of these things is being fed from this system. So the next system I'm gonna introduce you to is the team sympathetic vagal. This team is called in when our threat detector says, this is dangerous, but I think we can do something about it. So our sympathetic vagal, so again, you're going down that tail, just getting a little further down. And this is the state where it's fight or flight. So think about a gas, the gasoline being pushed. So this is where when, when, when team member neuroception says there's danger, it calls on the, the sympathetic system. What happens when you, somebody cuts you off? Or what happens when you feel offended? When you feel humiliated? Fight, flight comes into play. And so... The wonderful adrenal glands in our brains shoot down some stress hormone and bam your team member has come to your defense because there's definitely danger because your husband's looking at his phone you see there's a lot of danger in that and so this is where we think there is a lion chasing me and i think i can do something about it and get away from it remembering this your brain doesn't understand the difference between the threat of a bear or a lion chasing you and your husband looking at his phone and not paying attention to you. They're both the same equal fear. It's crazy, but that is literally what happens. It's the same system that reacts from one danger to another danger. I have kids that have panic attacks at school because they can't find their locker. That is the same system that reacts you know, hundreds of years ago when they're, when they're pioneering with the coyotes, like in tr- trying to stay safe. Like the same system is reacting, but completely different, different things. Um, so when we are in the sympathetic state, our system is mobilizing, and that means we are all using our energy to make the situation safe. So again, in this, in this state, this is an experience of I must do something, I must do something now, I must mobilize. Um, this is, so when you are in this state, what starts to shut down is we say, oh, this, uh, this system is so efficient that the physiology says, hey, what, what don't we need functioning right now? So while the sympathetic system is doing its job, what else can we shut down? Why don't we shut down digestion? That would be good because then we need less Stuff to go to that area, we could just focus completely on this stress. Okay, so let's. We just ate a hamburger, but who cares if it gets digested? How about our immune system? No, we don't need that anymore because we got to stay alive. So let's shut down the immune system. How about the frontal cortex, which is all of our thinking brain? So now when we're really stressed out, let's turn off the part of the brain that actually thinks. Okay, because that's really smart, because we've got to stay alive. And so a person who has experienced attachment wounds or trauma in their childhood or past may interpret a situation as life-threatening because their rational brain has now gone offline. And as your stress levels increase, your ability to think rationally decreases. And at some point they cross and this is off and your autonomic system, your limbic system is in full control. Okay. So moving on to the, so this is gasoline. I'm in danger. I need to run and fight back. So then when that kind of doesn't do all that it's supposed to do, our automatic nervous system starts responding to the present as if it's in the past and the brain no longer sees their loving partner in front of them because their system perceives danger and instead sees the caregiver who was neglectful and not available to them. So do you understand that? That when you're Spouse is looking at their phone. Your brain sees the caregiver from before. Okay, so then when what happens is, um, shutdown starts to happen, and this is what we call the next team is the dorsal team, and the dorsal team is the exact opposite of team sympathetic. And out of these three vagal states, this is one of the most extreme protections that we have. So we think that because it's a shutdown, it's immobilized. Sympathetic is mobilized. Dorsal is immobilized. So one is, is the gas. Dorsal then says, okay, we can't outrun this bear. Let's just freeze. Let's just shut down. Let's just play dead, and it shuts us down. Okay, so, so I'm going to scan through this because time is of the essence. Um, so do you understand how at any given moment God gave us this system? to help us to stay alive for real. Like if somebody cuts in front of you, you need to be able to act quickly to slam on your brakes. If your child is running out in front of a car, you've gotta be able to have that immediate push of energy to go out and grab them and to be able to have some of that adrenaline to get you to, to move and run faster. And then, we, and so, but then once that's happened, you've gotta be able to slow the heart back down. And all day, every day, we're running through this system in a safe, in a, in a way that we're supposed to. But when someone has experienced attachment wounding or they've experienced traumas in their life, these are extreme. And the further you go down the ladder, like in the sympathetic, you might go from, from uh, mobilized, but the end of it is rage. And as the lower we go, the worse it gets. In dorsal, the low, you might start with just, I've got to kind of slow down here. I need to sit down and take a break. The end of dorsal is suicide. And so the lower we allow ourselves to go down this, this polyvagal system the worse it gets for us so every one of us here tonight so understand this is where your stories came from this it started from your early childhood you told yourself stories and this is how your system has lived since then every one of us here tonight has written a story about our own lives who we are who we're not maybe your story says that due to some past history I'm going to be abandoned so they come in our doors and all of a sudden because in their past life somebody abandoned them all of a sudden now when they start feeling that little bit of connection, fear rises up and like, oh, I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be abandoned. This is where it's coming from. I don't belong here. I'm going to be judged. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be left alone. I'm not good enough. I'm defective. Nobody here could love me if they really knew me. That story, The story that every one of us here long for, it's a story of goodness, beauty, and Joy. That's the story that I want and that's the story that God wants each and every one of us to write. But because of the fall in the Garden of Eden, the enemy has lied to us and he has told us stories because of our past that now have infiltrated into that brainstem, into the autonomic nervous system. And now all of our automatic reactions come from things that don't have anything to do with us here today. I don't know any human being that would say, I'm really not interested in beauty, goodness, and joy. I would rather take heartache, pain, helplessness, hopelessness, depression. It's the kind of story that that Jill, and I have changed names, had longed for. She came into my office in her early 50s. She seemed to have achieved it all in her life. She was a successful businesswoman with a business degree from a very good college, and yet she couldn't understand why her marriage and life was falling apart. She couldn't understand why she felt so cut off and so disconnected from her children and her husband and why she was so easily triggered in the house and in her life. Jill also longed for this world of goodness and joy, but for some reason she was, a having, she was struggling to find it. And as we talked about her story, as I got to know her, I discovered that Jill had been in the, one of four children that had been given up for adoption at birth. She was the only one of four children who her mother just decided she didn't want. And the reason was because she was a girl and not a boy. There were parts of her story that were told to her early on that she didn't have any control over. It goes back to how other people sometimes have a part of telling our story. How is Jill supposed to escape a story like that? How about Wes? Wes was born to a family full of drug addicts. From the age of zero to eight, he was an observer and a receiver of both physical, from both of his parents in drunken states, both physical, emotional, and verbal abuse. Then he went into foster care and things got worse for him. It didn't get any better. I got Wes at the age of 17 broken, battered, bruised, a mess. Jill and Wes, they're real people. Their stories are real. They've come into my counseling office. And one time after another, and I assure you that both long for a life of goodness, beauty, and joy. Both believed that goodness, beauty, and joy were not for them. that It was out of their reach. How is Jill and Wes supposed to ex- escape a story like that? How do you make, what story do you write when that's what you've come from? Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12 says two are better than one because they have good reward for their toil for if they fall one will lift the other up but woe to him who when he is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up again if two lie together they keep warm but how can one keep warm alone and and though a man might prevail against one who is alone who will withstand him a three cold ford is not quickly broken so I'm here tonight to tell you what the church can do Ephesians 4 and 16 says he makes the whole body fit together perfectly as each part does its own work. It helps the other part to grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. The church builds, this is Acts Acts 2 47, the church builds itself up in love and its members cooperate peacefully as we should. It draws people to the message of Christ, adding them to the divine family. And Romans 1 and 12, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us, by the other's faith. Build yours and mine. The neurobiology of human relationships would suggest that the single most important features that enable us to flourish is not just our capacity for, but it's our need to flourish in the presence of other people. And in fact, we won't have any sense of purpose apart from having that purpose story, collect- if that story is not told collaboratively and told with other people. So here's what we can do, Church of Omaha. Where I have pulled this into, into here tonight is in therapy. In all of my trainings, my primary goal in therapy with people that have been traumatized, that they have had attachment woundings, and all of these things that are, have been done to them through no fault of their own. Do you know the primary thing that, they, that I help them do as a therapist is find a place of safe connection with somebody that they can trust? And I believe that what we have done as a church, and I am guilty of this, I can put both hands up, is that people come in here and they're broken, and they're battered, and they're bruised. And what do we say to them? Thank God we've embraced therapy, that we've engr- embraced that side of the world. That, that, there was a time when, when if you needed mental health help, you, you, something was wrong with you. Now, but we've gone to the other side of the, of the spectrum. Now what we do is we say, go get therapy, and that's where they're left. What is that person to tell of that story? I went to a church and I was so broken. And the only advice they could give us, the only help they could give me was to tell me to go get help from someone else. And many of us here tonight can benefit from those things. I am not saying that don't get therapy because there are many things that we're not trained to take care of. But what I'm gonna tell you is, is that when Jill and when Wes come into my office, I can promise you what they're not looking for is all of my science data in my brain. I do have a bit, but I can promise you that is not what brings them to me. Do you know what brings them to me? My connection with them. And I, learned, I heard in one of my trainings that 7% of people that, that, when, people that have been successful in therapy, 7% was theory. Do you know what the other 93% was? Connection with their therapist. And so this is what I'm here to tell you. People are not looking for you to know Stats. They're not looking for you to know all the things about all the things. They don't give a flip really how much algebra you can do. You know what they want from you? You know what they want from me? They want us to connect with them. They want us to to, to show them that we care. These people, they're looking for they don't want us to have all the answers. I promise you, and and maybe in therapy I probably have a few more strategies and things, but when they come in these doors, Church of Omaha, they're not looking for you to to know everything and to have all the eloquent words. You know what they need from you? They need validation. They need you to listen. They need you to to not try to fix them and to have all this wisdom, which sometimes is good if they ask for it. Sometimes people do need some direction. But if we as a church can learn that when people come in, sit beside them. Call them on the phone. Notice when they're not here. Take them out for coffee. I'm gonna tell you something. More 7% in therapy is, is, is technique. 93% is connection with their therapist. Can we here not do that? Why does it have to come from many, many ungodly therapists? They're connecting with all the wrong people. And I'm saying, as a church body, what can we do? We have the answers. It's you, it's me, it's the body connecting. It's your story, my story poured into them and it's helping them to realize, oh, I'm not so broken. Oh, brother so-and-so was addicted to drugs one time. Oh, sister so-and-so had a child out of wedlock. Oh, I'm not so weird and broken and defective and all of the things because sometimes we all make it look so easy. We make it look like we've got it all together when many of us really don't. We're just, we're the duck. This is what I call myself. I'm the duck that looks like I'm flying across the water but underneath... (laughs) And I suspect many of you are the same way. We can help these individuals w- change their stories and all it with, with some connection, with some safe connections. And so, and I'm going to leave you with this, safe connections. I can't promise that, every, that, that we can't always equate connection to safety because you know what? We're all human. There's one place that we're always going to find safe connection and that is with God and God alone. But what I can tell you is, If you do connect with someone and you find them to be unsafe, it's not the end of the world. Be careful what you say. But you know what? Don't allow fear to keep you from being vulnerable, from allowing yourself to be known. And what I would say to the other side of that is when people allow themselves to be vulnerable and they come to you and they talk to you and they share things with you that are very painful. The worst thing in the world you can do is run around and talk about it and hold it against them and and treat them different and, and and. what, we've got to be safe people to connect with, and we've got to be people that are willing to allow ourselves to connect with others. And I'm telling you, outside of, of salvation, this is the answer for the church. People in the world, we're not we don't have normal sinners anymore. They need connection, they need love, they need non-judgment, they need you to put your arm around them and say, you know what, I care about you. I love you. You're welcomed here. This is a place of hope and healing for real. It's not just words. But when you come in here, this is a place that you can truly connect.
0: And I promise you, she's got a lot more to say. She raced through and rushed through. And, and I know it because um, I'm reading the same book that she read that, that I think sparked a lot of this. And so next Wednesday and the Wednesday after... I'm going to be continuing this forward, uh, but, but I encourage you to think about what has said tonight, been said tonight, and how it relates to the body of Christ. You know, it's interesting to me that that system starts in the brain, which is in the head, and Christ is the head of the church. And if we're the body of Christ, you know, the hand can't say to the foot, don't need you, right, whatever, right? First Corinthians 12, we've got to respond to that autonomic system, which is Christ. We've got to respond to that appropriately. And so you can see um, those connections. Anyway, let's stand together in Jesus' name and let's pray. I want us to pray as we pray out tonight, not only for this, this series and what's coming up this month, but I want us to pray especially for those that we've reached out to, um, the 100 bags that we gave out Monday, um, as well as all the people we've been talking to, co-workers, et cetera. Can we pray together right now? Jesus, help us to receive what has been said tonight into our hearts and our minds that we might comprehend it, understand it, and most importantly, apply it, Lord. I pray that we would be more like you, loving one another and doing your perfect will. I pray also for those we've reached to. In our community, our neighbors, our friends, our co-workers, Lord, our classmates, I pray that you would touch them and draw them, for no man comes to the Father except the Spirit draw him. So, Lord, draw by your Holy Spirit, I pray. I pray people would be affected by the love and and the outreach that we've done. That, God, they would feel that sense of compelling to bring them here. And when they come, let them feel the power and the love and the mercy of Jesus Christ. Uh, Let people be born again. Let prodigals return home. We ask it and we pray it and believe it. And everyone said in Jesus' name, amen. Let's clap our hands and thank the Lord. Glory. Praise God. God bless you, greet one another, bless one another, we'll see you Sunday in Jesus' name.